This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. spelling out your first and last name and uh, maybe well just we'll start with that and how you pronounce your name Cecile C-E-C-I-L-E Leo L-E-O you know I think that everybody's got family secrets we just don't know if this was actually a family secret or this This, just uh a lack of information yes I guess it was just something that they'd rather not talk about you know it it would be like a family secret. Cecile Leo is a lovely woman. She had lived in Port Arthur, Texas her whole life before she moved closer to Austin to be with her family. She's 90 years old, and her husband Patrick Leo passed away almost 30 years ago. Patrick's mother, Emma, was a Crawford, and the Crawfords originally came from New Orleans. Cecile didn't know much about her in-laws. She knows a lot more now. Cecile didn't understand why her husband never wanted to visit New Orleans, and she had no idea that four members of the Crawford family died under suspicious circumstances. And she certainly didn't know that she had spent two years living with their suspected killer. What happened to the Crawford family in the early 1900s was a secret that didn't come out until just a few years ago, decades after Cecile's husband died. So if you, looking back from what you've learned, if you were going to describe kind of the Crawford family, what would that be? If I had to make a decision, I'd say they were a good family, you know. I I had nothing that I could say ugly about any of them. Well, you know, you and I talked about the story over the phone a little bit. You gave me a lot of really good information. Okay. Um, You know, why don't we just kind of start with you and your background and kind of where you grew up, when you were born and where you grew up and all that. Okay. I was born in Port Arthur, Texas, October 6, 1931. I grew up in Port Arthur. Your husband went by Patrick, is that right? Right. Right, okay. So tell me, if we go back now, how you and Patrick met. Okay, he was 12 years older than I, and I met him when I was 23. We were at a, a bachelor and bell party. It was a little social that Port Arthur would have every Saturday nights for the single uh, girls and boys. He had been married before. He told me about it. Now, he had two sisters, and they didn't reveal any kind of family secrets or they were very, I guess you'd say, secret about whatever happened. Matter of fact, Edward was looking up something recently. It's been within the last, I'd say, couple of three months. And he told me, he said, did you know Aunt Mary was married before? Now, I was in that family for 30 years, and I, I, I didn't know Mary had ever married. I knew her husband, Ray, delightful man. And both of the sisters were very, very sweet to me. Nanny was kind of distant. 
And that was Annie Crawford, right? Mm-hmm. Y'all called her Nanny. Nanny. And she was, was, she was really too much in favor of uh, Pat and I. When we were dating, and this, this was too, not too long before we married, well, she called me one morning about 7 o'clock, and she said, Is Pat there? And I said, No. And she said, Well, he didn't come home last night. I said, well, I don't know where he went. I said, he left here about 10, 30, 11 o'clock last night. And I hung up, and I thought that was strange, you know. Well, I couldn't wait to see him that evening, you know. Where'd you go when you left here? He said, well, I went home. And I, so I told him about Nanny's phone call. He said, oh, just don't pay any attention to her. There was acrimony between Cecile and Nanny because Nanny had lived in the family home for decades She was head of the household, and now another younger woman was taking over. And Nanny, Annie Crawford, didn't like that one bit. I stepped in to a a home that Nanny had been running for 40 years. You know, she came there from New Orleans after all of her problems, which I didn't know anything about that. See, she lived with us for two years. What years were those... That would be like 67 and 68. We married in 66. And the reason that she left, we felt that she needed to be with someone else. Patrick Leo's mother was Emma Crawford Leo. You'll hear more about her later on. Emma was the eldest of the Crawford sisters who are near the center of the story. But the real center of this story is Annie Crawford, the suspected murderer of four people in her own family. About 50 years later, Cecile met her husband, Patrick, and Patrick never told his wife any of that when Annie lived with them. None of it. Is there a chance he did not know about any of this? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I just cannot imagine, though, that I lived with him for 30 years and he didn't mention something about it. Well, he did have you live with a serial poisoner for two years. He might not be enthused about telling you after the fact. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a crime historian and the author of the new book, All That Is Wicked, which is based on the show's first season. It's available now, including the audiobook. I also wrote American Sherlock and Death in the Air. And this is our new season of Tenfold More Wicked. And now we're in early 1900s jazz age New Orleans, where the absinthe is plentiful, the bars are packed, and four members of one family will soon be dead. The Crawfords of New Orleans might not have been the large, supportive family that they seemed to be from the outside. And Annie Crawford might have been keeping a family secret, several secrets actually, for most of her life. We're calling this season The Morphine Murderess. New Orleans is one of my most favorite cities to visit. It's about an eight-hour drive from Austin, and I've been coming here since I was a kid. 
I love the music, I love the food, I love the people, and the city's rich history. Growing up, I sometimes heard that there had been famous murderers here, and the stories of these murders have become part of the lore of the city. There are many, many ghost tours in New Orleans, which makes sense because the city feels like it's littered with specters. One of the most interesting cases, and one that has inspired many of these ghost stories, is the Axeman of New Orleans. Beginning in 1917, the city was terrorized by a serial killer who would go on to murder four people and wound others. There are a lot of variations about the number of people who died, so I went with the Smithsonian Magazine's estimation. The Axeman killed men and he killed women. He targeted a series of Italian groceries and butchered his victims with an axe and sometimes a razor. You can almost picture a turn-of-the-century killer creeping around the city, searching out victims in the shadows of homes. Families, particularly in the Italian community, armed themselves. Sicilian immigrants had arrived in New Orleans decades earlier, and many of them lived in the French Quarter near the Mississippi River. The city was already rife with racism, both against Black people and Italian immigrants. And then in 1919, the murders abruptly stopped. The Axeman of New Orleans was never caught. Those murders are some of the most famous in the history of New Orleans. But unlike the Axemen, the deaths of four members of the Crawford family eight years earlier have largely been lost to history. Terrence Fitzmorris is a professor of history at Tulane University in New Orleans. He specializes in Louisiana history, so he's been very helpful with this true crime story. So let's start with this time period. Tell me about 1910 New Orleans. What is it like for the average person? Well, that's hard to say what an average person is because New Orleans is, as late as 1910, is still pretty diverse. There are lots of um, of Creoles of color, as they refer to here. There are descendants of Irish and German immigrants, and there are a lot of Irish and German immigrants who are still alive in 1910. How large is New Orleans? Is it a growing city? So New Orleans is around 340,000 people, and it is racially and ethnically diverse. Since the early 1890s, New Orleans has been more or less progressive. It's laid the foundations of of drainage, sewage and waste disposal, clean running water coming into the house, It has eradicated the threat of yellow fever. There are no more yellow fever epidemics in New Orleans. And and so the average person has seen a great deal of improvement in the last 20 years or so. What about religion? Are folks in the early 1900s especially religious? The city is predominantly Catholic, but it is also uh, religiously pluralistic. The Episcopalians have been in New Orleans for generations, as have been Methodists, Baptists, evangelicals, and what is referred to as spiritualist churches, which is sort of a hybrid with voodooism and Catholicism. I would love to do a historical case involving voodooism, but this is not that story. 
This case attracted a lot of attention in 1911 when a string of suspicious deaths became public and newspaper readers across the nation were shocked to learn who the suspect really was. Annie Crawford was an enigma, frankly. And part of why she might have become such a surprising suspect is because of the social status of women in this time period, or the lack of social status. Women weren't viewed as equal to men in most of society. Alan Gotro and Daryl Hepensteel wrote a book called Dark Bayou, Infamous Louisiana Homicides. And this story is one of their cases featured in the book. I asked Alan about how women were viewed in New Orleans during this time period. Uh, the time period socially, uh, a lot of uh, women are seen as genteel. Of course, the uh, women did work at that time. Uh, but women were seen as genteel. They were to be respected. It's, it's post-Civil War. Some women worked like the Crawford women did, but most stayed home to tend to their families. Faith and family were important to many women in the city. Most went to church services regularly, including Annie and her family. The whole Crawford family went to church, and it's a big Catholic church. Have you been inside a Catholic church before? So you see, it's big, and sometimes they're pretty ornate. This is St. Stephen's Church in Uptown New Orleans. Annie Crawford and her family went here for years. They were devout Catholics, and every time one of them died, they had a real big service. Historian Terence Fence Morris understands the church's history and why the Crawfords and other Irish Catholics were so involved with it. It's an old church. It had been one of the major Irish Catholic churches in the city, beginning with 1835. The Crawfords lived in an area known as Uptown. Author Alan Gotro says it's expensive now, but in 1910, Uptown was a working-class neighborhood. Back then, they had houses that, uh, uh, rental properties, mostly. And it was for people that, you know, you either lived, if, if you were middle class, you either lived, like, slightly above the slums, or you, or you rented a property. You couldn't really afford to buy it, so there was a lot of rentals at the time. And it's stately Victorian homes, and this was a stately home, and it was actually quite large because of the family that lived there at the time. Terence Fitzmorris says the Crawfords were all working class, and they worked hard. Walter Crawford was the patriarch. He and his wife, Emma, had five daughters, Mary Agnes, Gertrude, Elise, Emma, and Annie. Terence Fitzmorris says the whole family worked very long hours at jobs that some people would consider grueling. The men worked either for the railway company or owned a saloon, which was the other uh, avenue that Irishmen had. You either owned a saloon, a grocery store, or worked for one of the utilities. And they all did that. There weren't that many career options for working families during this time. Her father worked for the street railway company. Her uncles were involved in the same line of work. Railroads were very, very prominent in the city. There were several, there was no union railroad system. So railroads came in and out of the city. Like their father, 
Annie's younger sister, Elise, worked for the railroad. Her sister, Elise, worked for something called the Grand Isle Railroad, which is a local little railroad from New Orleans to the island of Grand Isle. And what about the women? What did Annie's other sisters do? Her sisters were all stenographers. They were all secretaries. And for women, there was the church. You could be a nun. You could be a teacher. But as late as 1912, Orleans Parish had a rule that married women could not be teachers lest they scandalized their children because they might become pregnant. So it was mostly women who were unmarried that were teachers. Nurses, domestics, cooks, but not chefs, cooks, uh, were all open to women. The Crawfords all had good jobs, tough jobs, but they seemed to be doing well. No one was in jail, no one was in big trouble. They seemed like a quiet family. Well, maybe to the people around them. First, let's get everyone's name straight. Walter is the father, he was 58. Emma was the mother, she was 54. But there was also a daughter named Emma who was 33. She had been married to a man named Edward Leo since 1903, and they lived in Port Arthur, Texas. Remember Cecile Leo from the start of this episode? The woman who didn't know she was living with a suspected poisoner? That Emma, the daughter, was Cecile Leo's mother-in-law. Annie had a sister named Mary Agnes, who was 30, and she also had an aunt named Mary. No more repetitive names. The youngest was Gertrude, who was 17. Elise was 24. And in 1910, Annie Crawford, the main character of this story, was 28. Okay, so everyone but the younger Emma lived in a large Victorian home on Chestnut Street. I'll visit that house later. I checked the census records for 1910, All of the Crawfords in that house on Chestnut Street were all still alive. But not for long. If you haven't looked at census records from decades ago, you should because they're very interesting. They tell you the ages and genders and addresses of residents along with their marital status. All four of the younger Crawford women, including Annie, were single. That seems unusual, considering how much pressure these women must have felt just to be married. I asked Terrence about that. So there's four young women living in this house, all in their 20s or early 30s, except for Gertrude, who's a teenager. None of them are married. Does that seem unusual to you? Um, I had maiden aunts in my family. and I, I was born in 1950, so I still had maiden aunts. I had great aunts who had married for uh, two or three years, her husband's died, never remarried. From my experience, it's not that unusual to to have that. I mean, four, yes, I think that's extremely uh, rare. And maybe they're considered a resource if they're working. You know, if, if you remove yourself from the family, there goes an income. And even though their house on Chestnut Street was in a working class neighborhood, it was a very large old Victorian house, which would have been expensive. Actually, in the years since, it's been turned into a duplex that's worth more than half a million dollars. So the Crawfords might have needed all of those incomes more than they needed the social status of having married daughters. So this is your working class Irish-American family in a large home. They had to have a large home, right? Yeah, and they, they were renters, though, remember. They were renters. This was a lively home full of opinionated women and one relatively non-opinionated man. Crawfords came in and out a lot. 
But the catalyst for my trip to New Orleans was Annie Crawford. A reminder that Annie was in her late 20s. She was a brunette with hair that she wore in a messy bun. Annie was petite at about five feet tall. She had blue eyes, large round spectacles, and a slim build. Annie was very different from her sisters. She dressed conservatively. She didn't date. She didn't want extravagant things. Her sisters enjoyed all of those things, and they seemed to be very lively themselves. But Annie had an acerbic personality at times, like an old soul who had a bitter life still to come. Annie was quiet and bright and a homebody, but she was rarely friendly. She scowled often when she wasn't expressionless. There was a coolness about her. She didn't seem close or affectionate to anyone, with the exception of her eldest sister, Emma. But now Emma lived in Texas with her husband, so Annie was all alone. Annie worked at a sanitarium and nursing school in New Orleans, which was a hospital that treated long-term illnesses like tuberculosis. It was called the New Orleans Sanitarium and Training School for Nurses. It was later renamed the Presbyterian Hospital. She worked in the medicine dispensary, which meant she was in charge of allocating medicine to doctors to give to patients. Working in a sanitarium seems like it would be a sought-after job. I asked Terrence about it. One of the more uh, prestigious institutions in New Orleans was the medical college that eventually became Tulane University in the 1880s. So Annie, you know, working in a hospital, or in this case, a a Presbyterian or faith-based hospital, was quite a, a, a nice job to have. Annie must have been bright. Did you have an impression of anyone's personality in this house aside from Annie? I think the sister Gertrude is young and naive. And I think she's also impressionable. And she probably dislikes Annie because Annie seems to be a controlling person. She takes a cue from her aunt Mary, who does not like Annie at all because they have they're they're in conflict. Aunt Mary lived nearby with her husband, Robert Crawford, who was Walter Crawford's brother. Aunt Mary never seemed to like Annie. She thought that her niece was very controlling, and Aunt Mary's feelings of mistrust would only deepen later that year. Cecile Leo felt the same way about Annie's controlling personality even decades later when they lived together. Cecile says that Annie was aloof during that time. I can't remember which, it was one of my brother's children that one of the pictures I had, that they were talking to her, you know, it was just taken at random snapshots that uh, we had. So she was communicating if the occasion arose. Well, she'd communicate with people, but she, she sat to herself most of the time. Cecile says that Annie spent most of her time, as she grew older, just sitting in a corner of their home, quietly watching people. And that's how she was when Cecile and Pat got married. We had a nice wedding, and and Annie was there. She, She was there very quietly. Annie was always quiet, even during the holidays. I can't ever remember Nanny ever even laughing, you know, or, uh... She, she was very subdued. She sat at the end of the couch there, and it looks like she never moved. There was that one spot. 
I have a couple of pictures I wished I had brought of her I took over at Christmas time, you know. But I'd have everybody at the house for Christmas dinner. And she, I mean, she wasn't a part of their activities or anything like that, but she'd get up from the couch and she'd walk to the table and we had a spot for her. But she, she was, she was there and that was it. Never engaged in conversation or anything like that. Very quiet. Annie Crawford did not seem to fit in anywhere, and she didn't react well to other women with strong personalities. That was not good. June in New Orleans is usually hot and balmy, which can be unbearable. Now imagine that humid heat with no air conditioning and no electric fans. Around the turn of the century, electric fans were beginning to be used, but only in upscale businesses or in wealthy households. They would become more affordable by the 1920s. But in June of 1910, New Orleans was hot and humid. The only real relief came from paper fans or chips from ice blocks or a dip in the Mississippi. This uncomfortable weather could make even the best-natured person irritable. Folks in Louisiana had a host of options to cope with that irritation, including drugs and alcohol, especially alcohol. Bar patrons in the city would buy rye whiskey, cognac, and absinthe in very large amounts. They would then spill onto the streets and encounter inexperienced and underpaid police officers who tried their best to round them all up and stop them from getting into fights or falling into the nearby river. These type of scenes were the epitome of what frightened some conservative political groups. The Anti-Saloon League and the Women's Christian Temperance Union were both starting the push for a dry America. But prohibition wouldn't happen for another decade. Earlier, I mentioned that drugs were available. I wondered which drugs were illegal in America in 1910, and it turns out none of them were illegal. In the mid-1800s, the U.S. had tried to regulate the sale of drugs by enacting laws that required they were labeled accurately. So if you were buying opium, you knew that you were getting opium, not cyanide. Not surprisingly, as the U.S. approached the 19th century, prescription opioid addiction became even more prevalent. Over the previous four decades, it had increased by more than 500%. It wasn't until the 1920s that opium would be classified as a dangerous drug. All of these drugs, ones that are illegal now, were legal then, and they were deadly if you didn't know what you were doing. And if you were addicted to these drugs, you were putting yourself at risk, particularly if you had unfettered access, like someone at a health facility might. Author Deborah Blum wrote a book called The Poisoner's Handbook, and she knows all about the history of drugs and poisons. 
So you could just get your hands on all this crazy stuff back then. They put cocaine in, like medications for kids. And morphine was also widely available, right? It's laudanum, which they would use to give women when they were upset or had their period or whatever. It was a really dangerous age in that way. She's certainly right. Heroin was sold in magazines as a cure for the incurable cough. One ad read, you will need them, order your supply. In 2018, the Smithsonian Magazine offered an excellent summary of 19th century drugs that were perfectly legal. John Kelvey wrote, When historians trace back the roots of today's opioid epidemic, they often find themselves returning to the wave of addiction that swept the U.S. in the late 19th century. That was when physicians first got their hands on morphine, a truly effective treatment for pain delivered first by tablet and then by the newly invented hypodermic syringe. With no criminal regulations on morphine or opium or heroin, many of these drugs became the secret ingredient in readily available, dubiously effective medicines. So that's where we are, an age when poisons like arsenic were sold over the counter to kill rats, And people at lunch counters across America were drinking Coca-Cola, which, of course, contained cocaine. Cocaine lozenges soothed the sore throats of children. And if that didn't work, then cough syrup laced with morphine would lull them to sleep. At her job at the sanitarium, Annie Crawford had access to all types of narcotics. By 1910... Annie had worked there for about five years, and she seemed quite good at her job. Author Alan Gotro explained what she did. What she would do is took care of the patients. I don't think she administered vaccines or any any things of that type. It was mostly of a custodial type of uh, thing that she did. But she had access to a lot of the drugs that were in that particular asylum. So Annie wasn't a trained nurse, yet she had access to a lot of medicine. That seemed unusual to me, so I asked historian Terence Fitzmorris about it. It doesn't seem unusual to me, given the, the lack of pain management, as we call it today, where the drugs are regulated and the doctors are highly trained in the use of drugs and, and, how, and how they should be administered. Terence says that there were a lot of Civil War soldiers who were addicts, and unscrupulous doctors who preyed on them. Their wounds lasted their entire lifetime because of the uh, how primitive, comparatively so, their medical treatments were. And so as these old veterans come in, these doctors are, are telling them, you can be cured of all the pain that you're suffering, whether it's a, a wound or a mental wound. And those newspapers are filled with that sort of stuff. Heroin was one of those cures for morphine, So by 1910, addiction was skyrocketing across America, including in New Orleans. It affected families just like the Crawfords. I had a difficult time sorting out the personalities of the two men in the Crawford family, Walter Crawford and his brother Robert. Terrence Fitzmorris had a hard time with that, too. I think the men are nondescript. I don't know where they are. It's because they never popped up in the local newspapers, even when their wives were mentioned in them for going to local events. Annie was certainly not nondescript. She was controlling and judgmental and frequently unpleasant. Well, my my impression was probably Annie was the problem child. 
Hmm. Okay. And, you know, when you have problem children, they're very rebellious against their parents. Terrence Fitzmorris says that Annie Crawford seemed to lack that famous Southern charm, even in her own home. The newspapers do depict her as creepy. I mean, they do depict her as being extremely eccentric, right? But she was a creepy person. There was no doubt about it. And, and she did try to rule the roost, didn't she? It was June of 1910 when Annie stepped off the streetcar to go to her job at the hospital. It was about three miles from her home on Chestnut Street. The facility was called a model hospital for patients and physicians. It had electric elevators and clean rooms. It was huge. There were three three-story buildings which took up two city blocks. Loads of people worked at the sanitarium. Doctors and nurses and patients constantly came in and out. It was easy to slip away for a moment. It was easy to be sneaky. Annie arrived at the hospital in June of 1910 for her normal shift at the medicine dispensary. She walked over to the cabinet where the drugs were stored. She worked with these medicines every day. Annie watched patients writhing in pain who would be calmed by these powerful sedatives. Annie had never mixed up medicine before, but she understood very clearly how potent the narcotics were, and she could identify each of the bottles and what pills were inside them. Annie opened the door to the medicine cabinet and examined the bottles. There were small white capsules inside. Unbelievably, the cabinet was usually left out in the open for anyone to see. A nurse watched from behind the door as Annie's hand moved to her pocket. And when the nurse glanced away, Annie Crawford had disappeared. Annie worked steadily for the next few weeks, but she sensed that people were watching her. Then her supervisor called her into his office. He told Annie that she had been an exemplary worker for years, but over the past several weeks, nurses and doctors noticed that large amounts of morphine and other drugs had gone missing from the dispensary. She was fired immediately. Why was she taking the drugs? Was she selling them or taking them herself? Or was it something else? Annie quietly left the hospital without a fuss. A month went by and she still hadn't secured another job, but luckily she had her large family to lean on. Her father had a steady job as a carpenter at the railway. Her two other sisters were employed. Young Gertrude was still in school. Everything would be okay for the Crawfords. One day in June of 1910, Annie Crawford returned to her old Victorian home on Chestnut Street, ready to see her family. She greeted her 30-year-old sister, Mary Agnes. Mary Agnes and Annie were the closest in age, just a two-year difference, and Mary Agnes had once worked for the same sanitarium where Annie had worked. But Mary Agnes had resigned earlier that year. The two of them should have been close, but they didn't seem to be. Now Mary Agnes worked as a stenographer at the nearby railway station. A stenographer is trained to type or write in shorthand for official documents like court transcriptions. 
In the early 1900s, shorthand was used by supervisors to record conversations or to dictate long letters or to preserve speeches. Author Charles Dickens was a big fan of shorthand. Young female students took shorthand courses in school. It was a sought-after job, and Mary Agnes seemed to be good at it. Mary Agnes had dark brown hair, wide-set eyes, and pale skin. She was reserved, but she seemed close to everyone in the family, except for Annie. Annie had always seemed cold to her and distant. That could have resulted from mental health struggles or a personality disorder or an autism spectrum disorder. Or maybe it was just her personality. That June evening, Mary Agnes ate dinner as her sister Annie milled around the kitchen, eyeing her. The night began as it normally would, but within a few hours of finishing her dinner, Mary Agnes began to complain. A lot. She held her forehead and closed her eyes. The dim light of the gas lamp in the house made her headache worse. Her mother, Emma, suggested she lay down. Annie volunteered to prepare her headache powder, but the symptoms were becoming worse, and they were affecting more than her head. Mary Agnes's neck felt stiff and achy. Her mother felt her forehead. She was very hot. She obviously had a fever. Annie walked over quickly. Let me care for her, Annie insisted. She gripped a glass of water in her hand. Mary Agnes struggled to sit up and take a sip, but Annie helped raise her head. The sisters were all quiet now. Mary Agnes fell asleep and dozed all night. The next morning, Elise Crawford didn't think Mary Agnes seemed any better. But despite Mary Agnes's illness, Annie was calm. She didn't panic but her mother did. She quickly sent Annie next door to make a call because the Crawfords didn't have a phone themselves. Annie rushed to the neighbor's home and rang the operator. We need a doctor, please, she told the person on the other end of the line. And soon, help came knocking at the door. The physician was a local generalist named Dr. H.B. Gessner. He thumbed through the various pills and syringes inside his leather medicine bag. He retrieved his thermometer and asked Mary Agnes to hold it under her tongue. She did indeed have a fever. Annie hovered nearby as Mary Agnes quietly described her symptoms, her sensitivity to light and her cracking headaches. She had suddenly become disoriented when she had felt fine at work just the day before. Mary Agnes was beginning to feel nauseous now and her neck still ached. She moaned and closed her eyes. She fell asleep as Dr. Gessner continued to examine her. He asked if she had taken any medicine. No, replied everyone. He nodded and scribbled notes, recording his conclusion. Based on her symptoms, Mary Agnes had spinal meningitis. This was a serious diagnosis. Spinal meningitis is an infection of the fluid and membranes around the brain and the spinal cord. And the disease can move quickly, Without proper treatment, it can cause brain damage and even death. In 1910, there were serums for the disease, but none really offered protection. Penicillin would eventually become a treatment, but the important antibiotic wouldn't even be discovered for another 20 years. Here's the issue. There was no way a general practitioner would be able to conclusively determine if Mary Agnes were to die from meningitis. Today's doctors would do a lumbar puncture or a spinal tap to collect spinal fluid to test for meningitis, 
But that test was just introduced in 1890, so it wasn't widely available in 1910. There was no reason for the doctor to believe that this was anything other than meningitis. There was little for the family to do except to pray that Mary Agnes's body would heal on its own and that she might survive. Annie Crawford watched as her parents wept. She surveyed everyone in the family. The imminent death of a sister would be terrible. But this story was about to get so much worse. On this season of Tenfold War Wicked on Exactly Right. If you're a poisoner, the, one of the, your primary objectives is to get away with it. You're not making a statement killing. That's not what you do as a poisoner. You're figuring out how to eliminate a problem, a person, a threat, an obstacle to your wealth. I mean, I wasn't a good nurse. And I remember just saying, like, I'm going to kill someone if I keep doing this. So what is the motive? Well, let's eliminate the, the impossible and see what's possible. Could it be that she just truly enjoyed killing? Yep. Could be. Yeah. So the motive is not secondary. I just think that there's a couple of them there. If you love a good, real ghost story, my new audiobook original, The Ghost Club, is available for pre-order now wherever audiobooks are sold. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my new book, All That Is Wicked, which is based on the first season of Tenfold War Wicked. This has been an exactly right Tenfold War Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Natalie Wren. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold War Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold War. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldwarwicked.com. Follow Tenfold War Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.